0: You're listening to WJFF Radio Catskill. This is your host, Matt Hurtado, and I'm joined today by Tim Webb, a 20-year industry veteran. Tim, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here, Tim. Tim, can you tell us a little bit about your role in the industry, what you worked on, and what you're most proud of?
1: Oh, boy, that is a big question. Um, yeah, so one of the, one of kind of the interesting things is in 20 years, I've gotten to have like fingers in pretty much every bit of the industry of the game industry. Um, so it started off in, in quality assurance, basically just what you would imagine testing games and playing, um, basically eight hours of really awful, awful games that we were working (laughs) on. Um, and then, uh, And then I moved into art, which is really what I loved doing. But at some point people realized that I could program. And so they just, uh, programmers are more in demand and harder to find. And so they just kept dragging me further and further into programming. So over the years, I've gotten to work on a whole bunch of cool stuff. Like, um, done a bunch of games for little kids, um, Done some adver gaming, which is basically like advertisements in game form. Um, done serious gaming, which is more like uh, uh, teaching people through games. Done a lot of fun games, done some VR. Um, done quite a bit of VR, in fact. But um, really, kind of where I've where it landed is sort of this uh, back end server side. We're really focusing on a lot of the stuff that you don't really get to see in games or think about much. But if it's not there, then really you don't have a game and you don't have a community. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's all about you know leaderboards and being able to connect to the game and uh, get in and play with your friends and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's really where my niche is, you could say.
0: That's how we met. With that, so that's how we met, just through that. Exactly, exactly.
1: So, let's see. So, some of the fun projects that I've worked on. I worked on this interesting project when I was first starting out, um, called Interact TV or Fisher Price, where we made a bunch of games for toddlers. Uh, But what was cool about that was we got. He uh, was all basically licensed intellectual properties, so we, we got to do like SpongeBob, um, Clifford, uh, trying to think what else, um, I don't know, Marvel and uh, a bunch of the Nicktoons stuff, like uh, Tiny Timmy and um, Fairly Odd Parents. All that stuff was really cool because we got to work with the voice actors and actually like interact with the teams that were building or making the cartoons. So we have, we have so many cuts and outtakes of just like those voice actors who are totally in character, but saying like really kind of silly stuff because like (laughs) they would just stay in character all day. And, and you know, you're trying to have a conversation with them, but it's like, I don't know, having a conversation with Spongebob is super weird.
0: That sounds awesome.
1: um, yeah, I really. I really liked working on those, um, and really like. I really liked. Uh, my last job was working
0: um, doing VR training for the Air Force, and so, that was really, really rewarding. So let's talk about that a little bit. How did you, um, how did you transition from tr- the traditional video game development to VR training for for the Air Force? Yeah, so <clears throat> that
1: actually was a fairly big change for me. Um, I I had worked in a lot of studios and I had worked in, uh, in other industries, but I hadn't really done anything with the military. Um, but I got the opportunity after working on a game you know well, uh, after working on Dreadnought, um, I had the opportunity to to another studio that was doing more serious games which i was very familiar with um but they were specifically doing training for uh active shooters or (laughs) i should say they were training people to survive active shooter incidents um but in vr well they knew that i knew how to build games um and how to scale um i guess provide scale for user communities and that sort of thing. But they needed somebody to help them build up their studio and, and really like bring a level of quality that they had a proof of concept, but they, they really didn't know how to build out a game. Um, So I, I came on for that and basically helped them build their studio back up from scratch and We got to work on a lot of really great stuff with the Air Force. Um, And the Air Force had a lot of focus on needing to train, especially mechanics and pilots, very quickly on very expensive. uh, I mean, if you're, let's say you're working on a C 130, if you mess that up, one, that's a lot of lives that are at risk. But two, like, I mean, it's something like a $60 million aircraft.
0: So how do you, how do you ensure the realism and accuracy of, of training scenarios given the high stakes?
1: Uh, that's very, very important. And and there was always this huge emphasis on the fidelity, but there's this concept called digital twinning. Uh, and the idea is you go and you you have to fully understand the thing that you're building. So, for example, a C-130. Um, so, this is a big aircraft. Four engines, four, four propeller engines. Um, and it's fairly old, from like the 60s. Some of it's is high is uh, top secret. Some of it is very high-tech. Some of it is very low-tech. But in order to simulate that in VR, you've actually got to go out and do what they call petting, petting a plane. Like you have to go up to it, walk up to the plane, touch it, understand how big it is really like realize what it is to open up a panel and it's just full of hydraulics. So you go around, you take a bunch of pictures, um, work with the manufacturers, that sort of thing. And, but the idea there is you're not trying to recreate the aircraft in its entirety what you're trying to do is recreate the perception of reality. So is kind of a, kind of a tricky thing because actually if you recreate your craft perfectly, it will feel unreal, Um, which doesn't make a lot of sense until you try it. But for example, when you open up a a panel, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like it's awkward. Like, it's heavy, it falls a little bit, like it kind of pulls off to the side like in a weird angle. If you do that in a game, it feels like it's just bad work, right? Right. And so so you have to kind of clean the world up a little bit. Um, but with a digital twin, what you're doing is you're trying to create a digital version of this thing, but in such a way that it's optimized and, I don't know,
0: smoother um kind of its most perfect
1: version interesting if that makes sense
0: yeah so can you discuss any of the specific training scenarios you've developed or how they've impacted the real world military operations and um yeah in fact so we have fairly
1: public one um and in fact the 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 biggest one that we that we worked on um that kind of made a lot of a lot of headlines. Um, we did safety training for an aircraft called the T six Texan, which this is the aircraft that literally everyone in the Air Force and Navy who is a pilot they fly this the very first time. So everyone learns to fly this this old aircraft. Um, again, it's propeller driven, but it's pretty cool. Like, I mean, it's basically a World War Two aircraft. Um, maybe even newer maybe like uh, I don't know late 50s But it can go up to like 35,000 feet well here's the thing if you're at let's say you're at 30,000 feet and you're trying to teach a pilot what to do if hmm, I don't know what if their generator goes out mm-hmm. well that's a life and death situation right and if they get that wrong while you're training them, again, that's a loss of life and it's a loss of a, I can't remember, they're like a $7 million aircraft, right? Yeah. So so you lose a pilot, you lose a trainer, and you lose a, you lose a $7 million aircraft, all because you needed to teach them and they did it wrong. So what we did is we looked through, we came up with all of the emergency procedures that they're taught which is 62 emergency procedures, and we simulated each of those in VR so they could go through safely, crash out their aircraft in VR as many times as they needed to get that procedure down safely. And then when they go out in the real world and they try it, then they had about a
0: 30% increase in their success rate, which is pretty amazing. Oh, that's that's incredible. Is that, is there, were there any other ways that you could measure the effectiveness of your VR training sessions or metrics or feedback mechanisms? Yeah. So, depending on, depending on what it was, but,
1: um, some things are, are time based. So we always had analytics on time, always analytics on accuracy and, and your analytics on how close they were to, what the instructor was doing so this is kind of the cool thing about one in vr but but any kind of um, anything where you are recording the instructor or you're understanding the instructor as well as understanding the student and the great thing about vr is that you can basically you've got the ability to check both of them at the same time but we could we could measure how how far off the student was from the instructor and in a lot of cases the students ended up being better at certain things than the instructor because they were used to growing up with with video games etc so they have much faster reflex times interesting so yeah so this this is a cool thing that nobody really expected um but because we could see how did somebody who's been doing this for 20 30 40 years how do they do it and you compare it to How is somebody brand new, but maybe who's younger, who has a different skill set? How do they do it?
0: So you you get to learn a whole bunch of these different things just by having the analytics. Wow, Tim, thank you for that. That's very interesting. So would you say that um, from your traditional game development perspective to VR military training, and now I know you're back in, in traditional games, is there any kind of information that you're able to carry over or unique perspectives that you were able to gain from that experience? Yeah, you know, it actually kind of goes both ways. Um, so
1: going from games into uh, military training, learning, the, understanding the difference between, between trying to recreate uh, reality versus building something to a curriculum. And in games, we're always building to a curriculum kind of a kind of a core concept that's behind the scenes that you don't really think about when you're playing a game because you're just thinking, oh, this is fun. But while you're playing a game, we're constantly teaching you. Right. We're, we're teaching you the next step, right? And every level is designed for that. Every mechanic is designed for that. So using that same concept really makes you a good trainer for real-life scenarios. But then going back the other direction something the game traditionally does not do well is one holding itself to tight standards and holding itself to tight security and so bringing those back from the military world so far has
0: been very successful yep oh that's very interesting thank you tim um and final question here i know this is kind of a loaded one but um what do you see the future of the industry or what are you most excited for to see happen in the next five to 10 years?
1: Oh, man, we're at such an interesting and it's both scary and fantastic uh, point in the industry right now. So the last three years, really from 20 to 22, sorry, 2020 to 2022, the game industry had this huge explosion of growth. Everybody was doing really well. There was a lot of money, a lot of projects, um, because everybody's at home during the pandemic, and you know, you want to play games while you're at home. You want to kind of escape. Right. So a lot of people have gone back to work, and that's that has sunk now back to where it really should have been to begin with. Um, but what that means is that a lot of people had game jobs during that period who are now getting laid off. That's awful for those people, but as an ecosystem, it's really, really fantastic for the growth of the industry, because what that means is that going forward, those folks that have gotten laid off, they probably were working for a large company. They got great experience, but now it's going to be more difficult for them to get that job, and so they, they're going to go forward and start small to medium-sized studios what's cool about that and we saw this back in 2008 as well we'll see an explosion of, of indie games who so are not tied to huge publishers who are looking for their their investors bottom lines it's just about the creativity how can we push boundaries how can we come up with something new to try to attract players but also that's going and especially in today's climate that's going to to bring a big explosion of um things that are focusing more on equality more on diversity new and different stories and game types that have never been told never been thought of because new people are thinking of them it's not just the people that have had the money for the last 40 years so I find that to be the most exciting thing that's happening. Um, Even though lots of my friends have lost their jobs this year, next year, the year after, and five years from now, this industry
0: is going to be so much more interesting because of it. Tim Webb, thank you so much for your time tonight, and I really look forward to seeing what you have planned next and the next five years of the game industry as you've envisioned it.
1: Hey, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks, Tim.